Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest, and I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. I'm Devin Kadayama, and you're listening to The Bay. Local news to keep you rooted. When people see attacks on Asians and Asian Americans, many will say that they're hate crimes in order to call out anti-Asian racism. But it's a lot trickier in a court of law, and it raises some hard questions about how to address these attacks in the first place. There has been an increase in these types of crimes, so it's not insane to call something you see with your own eyes a hate crime. It's just, does that fit the legal definition? And does the legal definition fit with what we think is the correct response? Today, the limits of hate crime charges as a tool for justice. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. This is a conversation that has ebbed and flowed for decades in, you know, the United States, um, depending on kind of the political and, and, and social moment. What's different now is that we're talking about it in the context of Asian and Asian Americans. Marisa Lagos is a politics correspondent for KQED and co-host of the Political Breakdown podcast. 
I think for some people, they see, you know, an attack like the one on Market Street in San Francisco, and they think the most important thing that we can do out of this is to send whoever did something like that to jail or prison for as long as we possibly can. But I also think there's another conversation happening here right now where for some people, it's just about acknowledging what happened and naming it. So we're not just saying this was an assault on an elderly woman, but to say that if they were targeted for, you know, who they are, then that matters in the conversation. Can we take a step back and talk about the basics? What is the legal definition of a hate crime? Generally, hate crimes are defined as crimes that are perpetrated because of somebody's race, color, religion, national origin, sexual orientation. And the way those are usually used if we're talking about sentencing is that it would be an enhancement. Say you charge somebody for assault for attacking somebody, you know, there would be a based sentence, let's say, of five to ten years in a violent attack but they could add on another couple years if they were found also guilty of doing it for racially motivated reasons. A prosecutor is first going to have to prove that an attack or some sort of criminal event happened in the first place. So that's kind of the base of a prosecution. And then if they're going to try to prosecute a hate crime enhancement, they're going to need to also prove to the jury or the judge that, you know, whoever did this was motivated by that sort of racial or other animus. So the big decision is whether or not to charge somebody with a hate crime. Who's actually making these decisions? Local prosecutors and police departments to some extent because they're making the recommendation often to prosecutors. There's certainly federal statutes and the ability for federal prosecutors to go after these cases. Um, I would think that that probably only happens in kind of high profile cases. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, this is like all of our criminal justice system, real patchwork. And it really depends on which county something happens in and who's in office at the time. And yeah, it's, it's like a lot of things up to your local DA. Do people get charged with hate crimes very often? Or do we know? Hate crime data is not super reliable. We probably have next to no idea about what hate crime laws do because there's probably no piece of data less reliable than our hate crime statistics. I talked to John Pfaff. He is a law professor at Fordham University, and he teaches criminal and sentencing law and, and really studies these issues of sentencing and kind of, you know, how things work out. In general, the former Confederate states have much lower rates of hate crime uh, than the non-former Confederate states, uh, which is most more likely a reflection both of probably narrowly written laws, but also just a willingness on the part of police to entertain claims as hate crimes, to report them as such. Also willing to people who are the victims of hate crimes to, to come forward. We know that often in cities where there's more diversity and more sort of training, we see more hate crimes, even though there's nothing to sort of suggest that San Francisco would be, you know, more susceptible to this type of thing than Atlanta, Georgia. States definitely disagree as to what they define as hate crimes, right? There's a general agreement as to race, ethnicity. Um, national origin and religion can be kind of universally accepted, right? But other states go further and they'll include things like gender identity and sexual orientation as protected categories. And obviously other states most assuredly do not. The other thing we're seeing is that because the government statistics have been so unreliable, groups like Stop AAPI Hate 
are actually working to create their own databases and track this. And I think they hope use that data to push policies that could actually make a difference. All right, so now I want to talk about what state and federal lawmakers have been actually doing on this subject, starting with Congress, because last month, uh, Congress passed the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act, and it was signed into law by President Biden. What exactly is that law? All of these kinds of crimes and incidents are vastly underreported. So this was written by Senator Maisie Hirono. She is from Hawaii, a Democrat. The AAPI community, which represents like 40, over 40 racial groups and 300 languages, they need to be reached out to so that they know that when these things happen to them, they should report it. This bill would essentially create a position at the Department of Justice so that they would have kind of a point person in charge of reviewing hate crimes um, and also in charge of expanding sort of how jurisdictions can report them to the feds. It would encourage the creation of state-run hate crime hotlines. It would provide grant money to law enforcement agencies so that officers can be trained to actually identify hate crimes. And then it also would create a sort of public education campaign specifically around the bias against people of Asian descent. What about at the state level? Are there any proposals in California's legislature to respond to hate incidents or potential hate crimes? Yeah, so we have seen one bill. It's uh, called Assembly Bill 886. This was authored by now former Assemblyman Rob Bonta of Oakland. He's now our Attorney General. It's been passed off to San Francisco Assemblyman David Chu. This proposal, which passed out with bipartisan support of a public safety committee recently, um, would create sort of pre-conviction diversion programs for people charged with hate crimes. Um, It would allow the State Department of Justice to give grants to community-based organizations for both creating restorative justice programs. This is something both a victim and somebody accused of a crime would participate in together. And then it's also asking uh, the state to give money to community-based organizations to create things like mental health services and other support for victims of hate crimes. I introduced it when we were starting to see an uptick in hate incidents in the wake of Donald Trump's election. Now the need is abundantly clear. So Chu's talked about this bill and how it provides what he calls a multi-pronged approach to addressing, you know, this rise in hate crimes um, and and for the need especially to support victims in culturally competent, holistic ways. So this is a very different approach. This is not looking to extend criminal sentences. This is looking to kind of, I would say, create a safety net um, that I think the authors would say can help catch sort of both people involved in this type of horrific event. There was another bill proposed in the California state legislature by Democratic Assembly members Jim Cooper and Evan Lowe. It would have banned people who've been convicted of violent hate crimes from possibly getting early release from prison. That bill was voted down pretty quickly. But in the end, some of the hardest conversations will be with prosecutors at the local level. And that's where the politics of hate crimes could get messy. You know, when something like this kind of racial conversation is in the public sphere, they're going to feel the pressure, whether they're a Republican in a more conservative place or a Democrat in a more liberal place, to, you know, kind of throw the book at somebody to prove that they're taking this seriously. Um, I think it's a it's an even more complicated conversation for someone like Chase Boudin in San Francisco, who's 
already facing so much pushback from the police union for his progressive approach to criminal justice. Um, But I think he's in a tough place because a lot of what he ran on was this idea of rehabilitation and restorative justice. And, you know, I think that there's some people who really want to see the most harsh criminal sentences handed down. And there's probably other people who supported Chesa who are going to feel like he might be caving to political pressure if he goes too hard on any individual case. I talked to John Pfaff about this because Boudin is not alone. Imposing longer sentences is the kind of thing you can go to the voters with and say, I've done what we need to do to make you safer. And politically, that will resonate, but it's not actually going to make them really safer. We've seen DAs in Philadelphia and Chicago and Los Angeles and in parts of New York um, come up within this kind of progressive district attorney, progressive prosecutors construct. You know, that is it's focused on sort of violence interruption or figure out ways to address the, the underlying social anger, right, that that's causing this kind of, of violence, right? It's about probably more like street level messaging. Like these are the things that are much more politically risky, but much more likely to work. It is a particularly challenging situation um, for people on the left who have really argued very forcefully in recent years that our you know, punitive system has not been working, but mm. that also want to see justice done for victims. And it's like, how do you kind of thread that needle at a time when tensions are so high and we do know that there has been an increase in these types of crimes? You can do the right thing that's much more politically risky, or you can do the safe thing that's emotionally satisfying but doesn't make people safer. That's a really hard choice to ask an elected official to to do. It's not insane to call something you see with your own eyes a hate crime. Mm -hmm. It's just, does that fit the legal definition? And does the legal definition fit with what we as a community, whether it's San Francisco or LA or somewhere else, think is the correct response, the proportional response to whatever occurred? Lots of Asians and Asian Americans are looking for their pain to be acknowledged by the criminal justice system right now, potentially through the use of hate crime charges. But what are the limits of hate crime charges as a satisfying tool to rely on? I think it's both um, whether or not a prosecutor can even add that enhancement, whether or not they can prosecute successfully prosecute the entire crime itself. And then on top of that, I think the question we've been getting at, which is, does it work? Is there an actual sort of logical reason to say that adding another few years to somebody's sentence for something is going to make a difference? And again, there there are victims who will say yes, that yeah, like I want that message sent. I want my pain acknowledged by the state in a way that is explicit. Um, and there may be other families that say, no, what I want is for this person to understand what they did and to, to work through it. And maybe that doesn't look like more time in jail or prison. Maybe that looks like these restorative justice programs. So I think that that what accountability means can really differ from person to person and and from family to family. I mean, I don't, you can't assume that every victim, survivor, family member of somebody who was attacked in recent months wants the same thing. Sometimes these feelings are in conflict even within a particular person. A lot of the people who are calling for police officers to be sent to prison for life are also the people who don't necessarily think that our incarceration system works. And I think that's why, like as 
as emotional as a lot of these discussions are, you really have to acknowledge. I mean, I have sat with so many people on all sides of this debate, and I can't say that any of them are wrong. You know, like you can't tell a family who's lost their child that their desire for retribution is wrong. You can't tell somebody who's seen the harm that our you know, carceral state has done to so many black and brown men that even though some of those people hurt somebody, that their feeling that it is more harmful is wrong either. And so I think like hate crimes really sort of bring together a lot of these very difficult questions and elements and also speak to the fact that like what we're talking about, you know, whether it's police violence or hate crimes, they're all tied to like deeper seated societal issues that are never going to be solved by one sentence or one law or one case. And I think that sometimes we want to stand in these very simplistic responses for those bigger conversations. And I'm not saying they're not important and I'm not saying there isn't a place for them, right? But I think that it's it's often oversimplified because we just want a solution because it's hard to watch. On Friday, San Francisco District Attorney Chesa Boudin charged the man who stabbed two older Asian women on Market Street. Those charges are attempted murder, assault with a deadly weapon, and elder abuse. Prosecutors say they're still working with police to determine whether there's enough evidence to support an additional hate crime charge. Thanks to Marisa Lagos, politics correspondent for KQED and co-host of the Political Breakdown podcast. This episode was edited and mixed by Erica Cruz Guevara and Alan Montesilio. Shailen Martos is our production assistant. Issa Mendoza writes our Friday newsletter. The Bay is produced by your local public media station, KQED. I'm Devin Kadiyama. That's it from us to you. Talk to you later. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.